Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It was really important that Alicent and Rhaenyra, that tension, that friendship was believable. And yet, if you look at the actual words, they don't say to each other, I miss you. They don't say to each other, I'm lonely. They don't say these things. Finding those moments were really important to Ryan and Miguel and myself. Welcome back to West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast, where we're currently covering House of the Dragon, HBO's first Game of Thrones successor series. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Lauren Morgan. We are recording this before New York Comic Con kicks off. Don't think there's going to be anything Game of Thrones related announced there, but we're just kind of mentally preparing for ourselves, right, Lauren? Just <laughs> very much so, very much so. We're trying to get this one out of the way before all that craziness starts. So, you know. <laughs> But it's a, it's you know it's a great episode of you know live action dragon tales <laughs> that we're about to dissect. <laughs> I've been falling down a rabbit hole of all those TikTok memes of dragon tales, dragon tales. Um, <laughs> see, tic- TikTok is one of those the one social media site that I'm just like, no, I I think I'm just too old for this, so I completely <laughs> avoid TikTok. <laughs> it's like sometimes I see them when they cross over to another platform, but yeah, I'm just like, no, I I don't I. I I already waste enough time on various social sites. I don't need another one. You know what? Fair enough. Um, So this week, Lauren and I are going to be discussing episode eight of House of the Dragon. But before we kind of dig into all the nitty gritties there, Lauren, as you know, there is some news that kind of came out this week from another corner of the Game of Thrones universe, the book universe. Linda Antonsen and her husband, Elio M. Garcia Jr., they are the two co-authors who were blessed by George R. R. Martin himself, who are behind the upcoming The Rise of the Dragon, which is an illustrated history of House Targaryen based largely on what was written in Fire and Blood. Linda and Elio, but mostly Linda, gave statements to Variety in which they respond to claims of racism largely stemming from Linda's past blog posts and tweets. Lauren, I know this is something that you've been aware of for some time. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give a little bit of background on who Linda and Elio are and why they are kind of in the predicament that they're in now? Yeah. So uh, if you anyone's a longtime fan of Game of Thrones or the Song of Ice and Fire, they'll know that Linda and Elio established Westeros.org and the assorted uh, A Song of Ice and Fire wiki that kind of goes with it. They have, for a long time, they have helped George kind of fact check his work. 
and they I think they believe that they started helping him out keeping his plot straight in a feast for crows and you know they've done they did the world of ice and fire with him so they've been sort of blessed by him for a long time as like sort of like the head sort of fact checkers canon holders of of this whole world and but the thing is linda has had some very controversial posts in the past she her and elio basically really just want the shows both game of thrones which she was critical of and house of dragon a little bit less so to just hew as closely as they can to George's original vision. So they've uh, been basically accused of racism because they don't like when characters that are described as potentially white in the books are cast uh, of a different racial type. She seemed to have been against the casting of a black actor of Steve Toussaint as the head of House Valarians. So, and this sort of percolated up when George announced that uh, The Rise of the Dragon was coming out. And, you know, this is based on his story of Fire and Blood. This is basically just sort of Fire and Blood with a lot of illustrations. But Linda and Elio helped sort of condense it down and uh, there are some posts where Linda basically said all he did was sort of sign his name to this. So, and there have basically been sort of viral Twitter threads of Linda's very, very, like, of, of her statements over the years, which are pretty incendiary. She calls, she's called critics feminazis. She's used some other very uh, colorful language. And so basically the kind of the greater fandom is sort of, Uh, rebelling a little bit about that, you know, George continues to give these two people sort of his blessing in terms of being his, you know, collaborators. So that's sort of the thing that's kind of coming up. They talked to Variety, but there's been a lot of other stuff kind of getting coming out and percolating. This isn't like a new thing. Like I've, you know, I've been part of this fandom for, you know, well over 10 years. And I've known about this for a while. So uh, I'm, you know, kind of not super surprised that's bubbling up again. Yeah, I was reading through all of the screenshots of Linda's past like Tumblr posts. And a lot of them are they do not age well at all. No, no, she's very controversial. And rightly so. Like she says stuff that you're just like, wow, that is, you know, so I'm sort of very curious to hear what George says about this. And both Linda and Elio have said their posts are being taken out of context and this and that. But like, you know, considering we're having this sort of greater controversy involving the rings of power, involving the little mermaid and all of this stuff about, you know, properties that were, you know, originally seen as white being cast with actors of color and how much racist abuse that these actors are getting. It's like, you do have to sort of take a stand and be like, what are you defending here? Or what, like, what are you really saying when you you decide that like, you know, House Valarian can't be black. Like you're just sort of gatekeeping in a way. So, you know, there's something like, I I do think there's sort of a right, rightful controversy about uh, her statements and, and her past statements and Georgia's continued collaboration with her. Yeah, this whole affair seems to be really multi-layered. I, I think, like in sort of the the screenshots that I've seen that fans of in the Game of Thrones fandom have taken and posted on social media, right? There was even like one instance where Linda was called out for appearing to use the Swedish word for the N word, and it's not just all of this, which is already you know damning and very problematic on its own, but it's also the fact that. 
they are so aggressive in the pushback towards the critics. It's, you know, it it gives very J.K. Rowling kind of vibes yeah. <laughs> here, not to they're, bring up they're very, the other. They're very combative. Like, you know, she's very combative and she's always been very combative. I mean, I remember back, you know, just witnessing some stuff on Westeros.org when I used to sort of look through those forums and things like that and just remembering that they were somewhat combative. And they really, I, I do recall, they really were not happy with Game of Thrones overall for some of the changes they made. But yeah, they they have been super combative about the whole thing as well. Yeah, I, I'm also wondering what the context behind this Variety article was because it didn't really seem like an interview. It seemed mainly like comments credited to Linda, but they're not full quotes. I I don't know if that's just by nature of what Linda and Elio gave to Variety, but a lot of it is Variety kind of putting things into context and sparingly using quotes, which I don't think helps the matter. It, it just kind of seemed like they were dancing around a lot of thing, and it was very kind of a wishy-washy, definitely not an apology. I mean, there was one line where Linda is quoted as saying, if George had indeed made the Valerians black instead of white, as he mused on his not a blog in 2013, and this new show proposed to make the Valerians anything other than black, we would have had the same issue with it and would have shared the same opinion. Although historically speaking, you know, Linda has seemingly applauded when some white actors, including Ed Skrine, kind of take over roles, even though, you know, despite, I, I mean, it's not necessarily canon in the book, per chance, that these characters are white, but there were casting rumors going around back in the day that the character, you know, Ed ultimately got was, they were trying to fill with a person of color. And who knows if that's actually true or not. But again, there, there's just <laughs> so many different... It's not- it's sort of like, it's not like there's just one instance that's being measured. It's a lot exactly. of stuff. Like, if you look through it, it's like, because there was a thread going around, even before the Variety piece, there was a thread that I just saw last week, which was just a thread of Linda's statements throughout the years. And it's not just, like, one statement. It is multiple statements over a very long period of time that, you know, is, you know, that sort of calls it into all of it into question. So yeah, and at the time that we're recording this podcast, EW did reach out to Martin's publisher for comments. He has not provided a statement at this time. Who knows if he's going to comment on the matter. According to Linda, George is aware of what people are saying about them online, but apparently hasn't, you know, hasn't parted ways with them and hasn't told them to stop posting. So that's according to them. This is all a very messy scenario. It certainly does not help the publicity for the Rise of the Dragon book, which is a shame because I think, you know, a lot of Game of Thrones fans are really looking for all these illustrations that are going to come out with this book. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, it's like if you're, I mean, this is a, a very much a, a fan-centered book, and it's for people who really liked House of the Dragon and wanted to see sort of, more, well, not House of the Dragon, Fire, Fire and Blood, and sort of wanted to see more about it. But, you know, I, I did see underneath the announce his announcement about it last week that a lot of people were like, if Linda's involved, I'm not buying it. And that's a definitely complicated place to be in if you're just releasing a big sort of coffee table book like this is. You know, it's not just a paperback. It, this is a, a very sort of nicely made book. Yeah. So now let's dig in to episode eight 
of House of the Dragon. For anyone listening in, our ground rules remain the same. In this first portion of the discussion, we're just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective. And that means anything that has already aired on the series up to this point, including in episode eight, as well as anything that's been mentioned in the press is fair game to talk about. We'll only really bring in the books if it helps answer very basic questions that casual viewers may have missed. And then the second portion of this podcast, we're going to be bringing in Martin's book to talk about House of the Dragon through that context and kind of paint the larger picture of where this is all taking us. And then the final portion of the podcast will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, we are joined by Gita Patel, who directed episode eight of House of the Dragon. So Lauren, we have another major time jump between episode seven, episode eight. I, f- I think this is the last, I mean, maybe don't quote me on that, but I feel like this is the last or one of the last major time jumps, depending on where episode nine takes us. How long has it been since episode seven? It's been six years since the last episode. And they say it in the very opening moments of the thing, because we open on Driftmark. Rhaenys is sitting in the Driftwood throne. It turns out that Corliss, it, it seems like Corliss has basically taken his grief over the death of his two children and just gone out fighting for the last six years. So he's been, uh, and we find out that he has been injured in the Stepstones. He's been injured very gravely. We don't do not see Corliss in this episode, but he's he's been injured. He now has a terrible fever. He is traveling back to Driftmark, but both uh, Rhaenys and her and his brother have not seen him. They do not know what state he's in. They do not know if he will be dead when he arrives. So the question of who is going to inherit Driftmark is a big prominent question here, and that drives most of the action for this episode and basically since obviously in in a normal situation it would be going to the next male heir but the next male heir is jace who is in line for the iron throne so since jace is in line for the iron throne this is following to venera's second son luke and he is supposed to be inheriting Driftmark. And we saw in the last episode that he said that if he inherited Driftmark, he, you know, that that meant just sort of everybody was dead. And so we had that little scene between him and Corliss in the last episode. So it's sort of like this whole Corliss's sickness sort of and sets the scene for this entire episode. Yeah. And I, I found it very juicy to kind of put Vaymond and Rhaenys together. It's Rhaenys has been serving sort of a steward of the Driftmark throne and her husband's absence. But now Vaymond is kind of stepping up to the plate and basically saying, you know, I <laughs> I am next in line to claim this throne. If given the fact, you know, that Jace and Luke are not pure Valyrian blood. And I think this is so interesting because Rhaenys had that moment alone with Corlys in the last episode by the fireplace where she tells him, look, my husband, we're away from the public. We can just say what what the truth of the matter is and the fact that these are not Lanor's sons. It's a fact that Corliss is very keen on sweeping under the rug for the sake of his family name and for the sake of what history, you know, will quote unquote remember. Rhaenys, though, is very aware of this fact, talks about it. I mean, strategically, she doesn't like, you know, go around telling everybody. So I think this was a poignant moment to have Vaymond also come to her and be like, you know what's going on. Why can't we just act accordingly? So as you said, this is six years or so 
after episode seven. We see a lot has changed. Rhaenyra has been living with her now husband, Damon, at Dragonstone all this time. Jace and Luke are now fully grown and new actors play them. Harry Collet plays Jace and Elliot Grehald. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> plays Luke. Joffrey is now a little boy. And Rhaenyra has two more children, Aegon and Viserys, and she's pregnant with a third. And they are all clearly the children of Daemon. You know, they have the signature Targaryen silver locks. And they get a letter. They get a letter, or Daemon gets a letter, I should say, from Bela, who is serving as the ward of uh, Princess Rhaenys at Driftmark. And Bela warns them that Vaemond is coming to King's Landing to challenge the legitimacy of Luke. And by extension, that means the legitimacy of Rhaenyra as their mother and of Laenor as their supposed father. Lauren, what were your general thoughts about all of this? I, for one, found it really interesting. I'm always interesting to see which points in Fire and Blood end up becoming these big, the focal points for these big episodes. I don't think I, I would have pegged this kind of moment to be the centerpiece. You know, we'll talk about the books later, but in the books, Corliss just winds up having a a bad fever. And this is where this sort of all sort of flares up. And it's actually, it's not his brother, it's his nephew who's sort of next in line to inherit the Driftmark throne. And the other thing is, it's like, the thing is like, there's also Bela and Reyna who like, you know, Vaemon keeps talking about like his line dying out, but it's like, Lena is like, she had two children. So their line is not dying out. There are, you know, there are other Valarians here. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that, that Bayman kept saying that, that like, you know, their line's going to die out. And so I thought that was kind of like very interesting. But this does really bring to a point the fact that, you know, Luke and Jace are obviously not Valarian. Like, and this is the thing that just keeps coming up again and again. And I, what I thought was very interesting with about Ronera is that she knows the truth. She Damon knows the truth, but she's just still kind of is like, how dare you? Like, you know, in in the public sort of front, you know, it's still just such an affront to her as the princess of Dragonstone for anyone to publicly suggest what is pretty obvious. If you know what the two fathers involved looked like. So it's just kind of a, a very interesting thing where she just, you know, keeps getting like very haughty about like, how dare you, even though this is. But you're basically saying the truth here. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing, but it does sort of bring to a head. Like we, we see six years has have gone past. We've got new actors for Jace, for Luke, for Aemond, for Aegon, for Helena. So all of the younger people are now things. We, we see that like Damon and Renera have seemed to have a very functional marriage. Like we see, we first see Damon going to retrieve new dragon eggs, I assume for the next, the baby that Renera is pregnant with. So I thought that was kind of like, and then we, we see also like when they arrive to Dragonstone, like what Allison has been like, and also just, we'll get to this, but what has happened to Viserys, who is just looking more and more like the Crypt Keeper? Like, it is amazing that this man is basically alive at all because he just looks like he's he's barely hanging on to to life 
It was very cool to see how it all came together. During my reporting for Entertainment Weekly's House of the Dragon cover story and set visit, I was on location at Legion Studios in London to watch two scenes from this episode play out. The first was the Dragonstone sequence where Rhaenyra enters you know, the common area. What are we calling this? Is this, this isn't the throne room, I don't believe. No, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, I guess it's sort of like their common area. It's kind of like their war room. Yeah, pretty much. But it looks a little bit different. Yeah. And let, I mean, what the one thing I remember most is how cold that set was. It was the coldest set. It was a pop-up stage. So it had no insulation Everyone was freezing their numb nuts off. <laughs> I was just sitting backstage um, next to a heater, a portable heater, just trying not, you know, to have my teeth chatter too loud to kind of ruin the take. <laughs> but it was it was very cool. I mean, I had no idea that this would be the first episode where the adult actors playing Rainier's children and Allison's children were going to be making their debut. And it was just really cool to see everyone interact with each other. Emma Darcy is a star. They gave so many different variations. No two takes were the same. It was very cool to see them interact with Matt Smith, who also had injured his neck over the course of filming he injured his neck and so he could really only film for a finite amount of time each day before he had to go rest and he tried to do it all and everyone was as accommodating as they possibly could but that was also kind of another thing in the back of everyone's mind you know the urgency to get through these moments but but that said i mean it was it was very cool to see how all these different things that I saw and all the different variations of this sequence kind of came together. Here is an excerpt from my conversation with Emma Darcy, who plays Princess Rhaenyra, that I conducted. It was very short, but they were kind of in and out of the hair and makeup tents. I kind of caught them before they had to go back to set. But this is from the Dragonstone set specifically. Take a listen. Are you ever going to forget Dranios ever again? No. <laughs> no. But there's, there's like a, they did a high vis, actually really early on in Cornwall, maybe like a shoot week, one or like two. Yeah. I had like a, I had a high Valyrian soliloquy. Can't forget that either. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's good, it's like a vocal warm-up. How difficult that is it? Roll thing. To be honest, I quite enjoy that process. I'll tell you what, the rolling R, it's like formidable when you first walk up to it. But actually now I just feel incredibly proud of the fact that I can just roll that off through whole sentences. How long did it take you? Do you like you remember? Uh, so I would say that I'm quite good at that sort of thing. In yeah. that I'm not particularly good at languages, but I I love an accent. Um, I enjoy pretending to well famously to pretty other people. <laughs> um, so I, I like I don't know, I reckon I find it hard to tell you an estimate in hours. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of yeah. speaking but both side Valerian in my living room. And yeah, you got to do a good vocal warm-up is what I'd say. Because yeah. that tongue's got to do a lot of work. <laughs> it's got to go to places that uh, maybe it hasn't seen in a while. Just walking onto the set today, I mean, I was kind of blown away. I mean, do you remember your first impressions just arriving on set here? Yeah, I mean, 
So at T stage, they built King's Landing. No one's told them that that's not how you make movies anymore. You don't just build the whole castle, you don't have to build the whole thing, you just build bits of it and then you cheat the gaps. But it's amazing because, well, everything is exactly where it's supposed to be. And the back corridors link the rooms, as they say in the script. And as a result, it gives you so much creative freedom because it's allowed us to do like scenes on the move where you have five, I don't know, scenes of dialogue one that starts in one room, one that ends in another, and you can do the whole journey as, as, a, as a single shot, because it's all there, you built a castle. You have to ask if it would have been cheaper to buy a castle, but I mean, I just, I still, I love, I love it. I still love being, particularly on team, because, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Like, you're also, you know, you're eating your lunch in the courtyard <laughs> that, you've, that you recognize, that you have seen. Yeah. On television, and you're there eating your lunch. I love it. It's like going to IKEA and trying the taps. You just can't resist. You can't resist it. I mean, just watching you just go through the scene, you have such a calm about you. You have such a grace to you. But and then I'm on set and I'm like freezing. I'm shivering. You got the high valerian you have to worry about. What's your sort of routine like? Uh, I've come to really appreciate the airlock of hair and makeup followed by costume because so I don't look like this in normal life. I look quite drastically different. I'm very short hair. I'm quite masculine presenting. I mean, and we love I, a wig. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I love a wig. Utterly cha changes everything. <laughs> changes everything, as you know. So I weird. I, I mean, not weirdly at all. That has become quite an important part of my daily routine. It's allowing, it's knowing that actually that airlock creates time for transition. I don't have to transition before I get here. Yeah. I don't have to arrive at the studio sort of already as this other person. I have this soft transitory space. And when I then leave my trailer again, I don't know, so someone else leaves. It's just interesting as well because you're treated differently. Inevitably. When I dress like this, I'm very treated. I, yeah, I receive the world in a way that's different to, different from. Other than that, I don't know. Decaf black coffee, a few of those, and like small amount of nicotine in the blood. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what sort of, what would you say is sort of a good impression of your mindset at this moment? I mean, you're, you've been filming this for a few months now. Yeah. You're sort of in the thick of it. Yeah. What sort of are you? Do you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Are you? still have that kind of excitement coming to set every day, like what's sort of your headspace like? Good question. I mean, I definitely do, have, I, I look forward to coming to work basically every day, and simultaneously I'm really tired, like both things are true. But even so, I'm, I broadly I'm excited to come to work deeply. I think the end is now in sight, I don't really know even how I feel about that. I mean. That's also sort of warded off by the fact that I have a huge amount of turns still to shoot. So it is and it isn't. But I'm looking forward to two weeks of time not on call at Christmas. And then I'm also looking forward to coming back with, with some reserves, some sort of restocked reserves in January to finish off. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm probably kind of nervous about coming off that precipice at the end of this because we, yeah, we, I mean, we started, we started the studios in, so, it will be surprising to emerge into spring. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who I'll be, I don't know what I'll be doing. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do. Uh, maybe I'll wear the wig anyway, we don't know.
Obviously, it seems like there's been a lot of strife heading into episode eight, sort of, especially when Damon kind of comes into this picture in this scene. What is she kind of going through right now? It's interesting. So eight, uh, episode eight starts after a six-year time jump. So at the end of seven, six and seven, which are the first episodes that in which I play Winner and the older version of the character, are, a, are like a roller coaster. And there's grief and there's sort of huge upheaval. And at the end of seven, Rhaenyra, newly married to Damon, leaves King's Landing, leaves a context in which her identity is constantly judged, criticised, uh, undermined. So interestingly, I think we come in at the start of eight. For the first time, we see someone who's had space to um, kind of grow their edges and stick by them and, and I don't know, kind of self-actualise a bit and feel that possibly it is okay to be this person, that one doesn't need to mutate one's shape in order to be, in, in order to make sense in the given context. So for the first time, yeah, she's had six years of living with her tribe, umpteen children, <laughs> Damon, elsewhere, away from her dad, away from Alison, away from, yeah, a, a context that she never made sense in. And so, arguably, I think there's a, yeah, I think she's more at ease with herself at the start of this episode when we see her here. And what's about to happen is she's going to be forced to return to King's Landing. And what I love, when we go back to our parents, even if we've gone away to the city and we felt a life and we, we feel that we know ourselves, can we remain as sure of ourselves when we go back to the childhood home and the site of trauma and the site of judgment? And that's sort of what plays out in episode eight. This little interaction that Rhaenyra has with Jace, I mean, do you feel like at this point, because I've always, I've, when I read the book, I was so fascinated with the parent-child relationship between all the generations. Yeah. Do you feel like in this moment, all of these external pressures are starting to kind of get to Jace and he starts feeling like he needs to step up in a way? I think that's absolutely true. I guess it's also a sort of coming-of-age thing. I think there's also a desire, I guess if you've got a very masculine energy and then and this sort of alpha, or or alpha aspiring beta male, maybe, <laughs> as the head of the household. Those questions about about authority, masculinity, I suppose those are all coming up for Jace at this point. And I like it because in some ways his earnestness, his sort of pious earnestness is possibly at odds with Rhaenyra's more cynical outlook. And I like it when generations somehow aren't of the same cloth. Like she sort of has in her eldest quite a like quite a serious son, <laughs> whereas generally I'm not sure that well she has never been that bothered about reading off the same playbook as kind of everyone else. Whereas Jace is currently sort of straight down the line doing his vocab sheets. So after Damon delivers Bela's message to Rhaenyra. They decide that really they have no choice. They have to go to King's Landing. Viserys is no longer physically seated on the Iron Throne. He's still king, but his ailments have gotten so much worse that he's basically bedridden. And the queen, Alison Hightower, she is the one who is serving as steward in the king's absence with a pretty big helping hand from her father, Otto Hightower. And... 
lots of things have changed. I mean, Lauren, what was what were the biggest changes of King's Landing that stood out in your mind when Rhaenyra and Damon finally returned back home? Well, it was interesting because they uh, arrived back and, you know, Rhaenyra is still the princess of Dragonstone. She is the heir to the Iron Throne. And basically, like, she shows up and, like, almost no one shows up. It's like Lord Caswell who who finally opens the door and kind of comes and greets her. But it's it's je- definitely not a not the kind of uh, arrival that an, a normal heir to a throne would get. And, you know, as she and Damon are walking through the the Red Keep, you can see that uh, basically it's a lot of paraphernalia from the Faith of the Seven is now all over the place. A lot of the Targaryen, basically their, their iconography, their dragons, their like anything that sort of Targaryen has been replaced by stuff that is very like, you know, it's basically like if you go to, you know, someone's house and all of a sudden they're just crosses and Virgin Marys everywhere. It's basically what <laughs> it's basically Allison has given a religious makeover to the Red Keep. So basically, they kind of just wander in to go see Viserys on their own because like Alicent is not there to greet them and will deal with what she's up to. And they just see that this and they haven't seen Viserys in a very long time. And he is basically like lying and it seems almost lying on his deathbed. He is just he's he's uh, one eye is covered in a bandage mostly he just he he's so skinny his teeth are blackened and basically both of them are are pretty horrified by this vision of someone you know like Rhaenyra loves her father and Damon for all of his stunts loves his brother so they're both sort of horrified to see Viserys in such a state and they also know that with Viserys in this state, that just means that Alice and Donato have taken more power that he would normally be wielding at this point. Yeah, I noticed even some of the soldiers, certainly the soldiers that were escorting Vaymond Valarian into the Red Keep, they weren't wearing the Targaryen sigil. They were wearing the High Tower, House High Tower sigil. And it speaks to our, what something our colleague Christian Holub said when he guest hosted the podcast last time is it's a pretty bold move for the Greens who are trying to, you know, put Aegon, a a Targaryen, on the throne while at the same time diminishing all the Targaryen symbology. And I also found it interesting in the context of the larger kind of Game of Thrones story. I mean, we assume that the reason why King's Landing looks so different in the original Game of Thrones series compared to where we are in House of the Dragon is because of of the sacking of King's Landing, right? When Robert led the rebellion, defeated the Mad King, and basically after that decided to wipe clean every last trace, anything that would have hinted at a Targaryen empire (laughs) being alive and thriving at any given time. Yeah, Arya used to find that stuff in the basement. Like, that's where she found a lot of, like, the Targaryen stuff. Like, she found the dragon skulls and things of that sort. Yeah, and, and but now we're seeing part of that had already started during, even before the Dance of the Dragons. And, I mean, we know Allison is becoming more and more of this religious figure. Olivia Cook, who plays Allison, commented 
posted in an interview that I did a while back. But she essentially said, you know, she, Allison basically has no control. So she really leans to Faith as to give herself an illusion that she does have control. I mean, Allison is even wearing the symbol of the Faith of the Seven around her neck always. And she's talking like, uh, <laughs> she's talking like she's seen some of those sisters, uh, you know? Uh... She's talking like she's a septa, basically. Like, yeah. that's the th- I think the interesting thing is like, after she basically stabbed the princess last week, she's just retreated into this like religious, like this religious sanctity to try and, you know, I think defend herself against accusations of what she's been up to. But yeah, she's just basically like when she prayed before the meal that they had at the end and all of this sort of stuff. And some of it reminds me of my very devoutly Catholic mother. And like, <laughs> sort of some of that was like that. And something that you and Christian talked about in the past podcast episodes, you know, the idea of religion and the faith of the seven, it's very rooted in Old Town, which is the ancestral seat of House Hightower. Religion and the Hightowers, you know, they go hand in hand. They're very linked, which is, you know, it's another It kind of, you know, what we're talking about, which is, you know, the erasing of the Targaryen iconography in place of these religious symbols, which are essentially Hightower symbols. You could kind of read it like that. Another addition that I loved that we got to see was um, Sir Eric Cargill, who is one of two twin brothers. Eric Cargill is Eric's twin brother and the Kingsguard. Yeah, Eric and Eric. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> George with your similar names, man. Like, like when I was watching the episode, I was like, is that Eric or Eric? Like I couldn't yeah. tell. I was just like, I was like, which one is this? Which I thought was so funny because in Fire and Blood, as you know, Lauren, even the Kingsguard mixes up their names like so, like so many times, and <laughs> they make a mo- they make a point to have Allison flub the name too. But even us as viewers, as you just said, we're like, oh, is it? Wait, say that one which more one time. is that? Yeah, which one is that? <laughs> <laughs> I, we also get to see some of the new actors playing the grown versions of Allison's children. We see Aegon II, now played by Tom Glenn Carney. We see Aemond, now played by Ewan Mitchell. And we see Elena is now played by Fia Saban. And they are just getting... Awful. Ugh. No. Helena's okay. <laughs> but yeah. Aemond and Aegon are just awful. I mean, uh, yeah, Helena just does have that iconic line later on in the episode <laughs> that we're going to yeah. get to. But there is a major moment that happens involving Allison and Aegon. Sir Eric Cargill. Eric, Eric, <laughs> we'll never know. The, <laughs> One of them. The parent trap that informs, they inform Allison. And it's the fact that Aegon has raped a serving girl. It, this reminded me, I think I think it was Sarah Hess, who's an executive producer in House of the Dragon. She gave an interview to press a while back. It might have been with one of the trade publications. But she essentially said that they aren't going to be depicting, you know, violent sexual acts. But she did mention that there is one rape that occurs 
in the context of the show that happens off camera, but we still see the emotional, psychological repercussions of that. And that is clearly this scene where Allison is comforting Diana. Is that how Allison? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if it was. Ty- I, I think it was Diana. So I, you know, part of me was like, "Is it Diana? Diana? Whatever." But I did think that this was actually a really well done scene because it give it gave Allison so many more layers and complexity because it was very much like she was very sympathetic to the serving girl and you know she did sort of like she's like you guys were alone and this and that but she you know there was more sympathy than you would have thought Allison would have given but it also seemed like this has probably happened more than once with Aegon and I thought it was very interesting how they kind of the change of Aegon from just being kind of like a numb nut <laughs> to just being so uh, aggressively awful in this because he just seems sort of harmless in the last episode and now you're like oh he has gotten very twisted in you know and and again this is like when Allison is like basically you know goes to him and calls him out it's like yeah this is the guy that you're putting forward for the iron throne this doesn't seem like the best idea but yeah going back to that scene like you know she she gives the servant girl money and of course we get the moon tea again so you know how it's funny to know that how uh, horrified Allison was by Rhaenyra taking the moon tea but now it seems like she is a frequent dispenser of the moon tea so I thought that was kind of a, a bit of an irony there but what did you think about that scene well first of all I feel like social media has been overwhelmingly anti-greens um, yeah. in <laughs> watching House of the Dragon, yeah. which I, I am also anti-green. Yes. But I have to say, I am loving Olivia Cook's performance. Oh, she's performance. so good, yeah. She's so good. And this scene was just another indication of her power as an actress. I mean, you could see in her face just the subtle details, the subtle changes that she made as Allison is listening to Diana, you know, speak her piece and, you know, talk about the assault and oh you can see that Allison is devastated for this little girl but at the end of the day she also you know she brings up she you know continues the patriarchy she keeps the patriarchy alive she pulls a lot of those well you're a woman and it's going to be a he said she said situation and I just really worry about that for you yeah so she wants to keep it quiet And then later, as you said, when Allison goes and confronts Aegon about this, that was also an interesting added layer to this. Allison screams at him and says, you are no son of mine. Because Allison has really been keeping the faith, literally and metaphorically. She has, I mean, she said in a previous episode, you know, I have to believe that goodness will triumph in the end. And Aegon is... A real piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. And so is his brother. And I thought that was the very interesting thing was that this is the first time you really get to see Renera's sons and Allison's sons sort of like in full, like, you know, now it's like Jace is much more of an adult and he's taking his role seriously as heir. He's trying to learn High Valerian. He's like, he's like, well, if I'm going to be, you know, he's really, really trying to do everything he can to be a good ruler. And then you see Aegon, who is just drinking and 
raping and just you know he's just the worst of the targaryens and so you see how like and then you also see aemond who is also not a prince in the, the the metaphorical sense you just see how awful he is as well and so it's sort of like very interesting to see like you know Rhaenyra's like supposedly her bastards are of much finer quality than these trueborn sons are let i mean I'll, I'll just say really quickly yes that is confirmation that uh, aegon has married Helena, his sister at this time, and she has multiple kids of her own. But let's talk about Aemond because Aemond kind of freaked me out. Like <laughs> in, in this sequence where he's training with Sir Kristen in the courtyard, he's become this really formidable swordsman, even with one eye and the lack of depth perception, apparently. But also you get the sense that he sees all, almost. You know, he's his one eye is staring at Kristen when he says, I don't care about winning tourneys. And then at the same time, he's like, hey, nephews, are you here to train? But they're allegedly out of eyesight, but he still knows. He's clocked them. What were your first impressions of Aemond? Well, first, Sir Kristen is the only person who isn't aging at all in any of this. Like, whatever, you know, maybe Sir Kristen should give whatever he's drinking to Viserys, because it's like basically Viserys is turning into like the portrait of Dorian Gray for Kristen. But yeah, so like Aemond, very fierce, very like, you know, this is and as I said before, he's definitely gives off the you know the targaryen uh the the coin flip that landed on the bad side and so it's sort of it's very interesting because it's like this show has done a lot to make Damon very complex and a lot more complex than I think he was on the page. And then you've got Eamon, who's basically sort of like a proto Damon, but even worse than Damon was. <laughs> like he has basically none of Damon's complexity. He is all just, you know, Targaryen asshole through and through. So I think that was like very much like, uh, and I think it's very interesting as we we're going to talk about towards that that meal at the end that how Eamon just cannot let things lie. And, you know, whatever people are, you know, making nice with each other, he has he has no room for for fools or no room for niceties or anything of that sort. He is not a diplomat in any way, sense or form of the word. He he just is he's brutal and violent and he's bloodthirsty. That's basically what I got from from Amond. Amond kind of looks like a mini Damon. I think it's like a physical manifestation of the worst qualities of Damon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and <just> basically. <laughs> and it's very interesting kind of at that end when they sort of like, when Eamon is, he's being so bad, even Allison chides him. And then just Damon kind of just, you know, faces off with him at, at a look. And it, it, that's a little bit of a foreshadowing for the future. If we know what happens here. So I thought that was just very interesting about like Damon kind of just looking at this young punk who was basically a lot like him at one point, but you know, he's sort of like Damon without being complex or interesting. I find right now. Yeah. Before we get into the big throne room sequence with the petitions for the throne of Driftmark, let's talk about Rhaenys and Rhaenyra's scene by the weirwood tree. First of all, I kind of I laugh to myself because the characters that are named Reyna, Rhaenys, and Rhaenyra are all in the same spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That just made me laugh. 
That was the one thing about, like, with Damon's children, Bela and Reyna. And I'm just like, which one's Bela and which one's Reyna? And this is where I really wish that they had given these two young women, like, more of a, a personality. Because currently, they're just kind of scene fillers. And it's sort of like, I really wish they had given them a little bit more dimension so far. So we would know, oh, yes, this is Reyna and this is Bela. And this is, that's their personality. And this one's this personality. So it's like, I, I kind of hope as we move forward, we get to start seeing a little bit more from Damon's daughters because they do have a part to play in this but yeah that, that was a little bit and i thought it was interesting that rainier brought reina to see her grandmother and 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 it's just funny i love rainies so much because she just sort of called it out like oh did you think you could bring your my granddaughter to soften me up and you're just like oh this lady should have been on the iron throne like this like and especially when you see what viserys looks at this point i'm like yeah they picked the wrong they picked the wrong leader just from a health standpoint because <laughs> like, you know rainies rainies looks so hale and hearty at this point compared to her cousin men always die first isn't that what yeah they that's say? true <laughs> but even like even damon looks like you know damon looks like he's barely he's barely aged a day but yeah so i love eve best in this role she's so good and it's so interesting because she's got a very complicated role because it's like she knows that the children that Renera had with Lenor are not Lenor's children but she also knew her son didn't really like women and so it's like she she sort of as a sort of aim in the same like she knows all she sees all and you know whatever she sort of personally feels in these situations she knows in terms of politics what has to be done and and that's kind of stuff so i think that was very interesting that like that scene by the weirwood tree where rhaenyra you know suggests that they marry bela and reyna to jake jace and luke that she kind of just leaves rhaenyra hanging even though it, i mean it is honestly a great idea because it basically means that there's going to be a valarian queen on the Iron Throne, and there will be Valerian blood for Driftmark as well. Like, the Valerian line will continue, even if it's not through Jace or Luke, it'll be through Lanish children that the Valerian line will continue and will reign on the Iron Throne, which is what Corliss has kind of wanted all, you know, all of this. But she's, it's just very interesting that she just kind of doesn't say yes to her at that moment. She kind of just leaves Rhaenyra hanging until it's really... The moment that counts, though. So I, I just love Eve Best in this role. I would love to see just a rainy spinoff. Like, I, I would just watch <laughs> this woman drink tea. Like, I just like, she's okay. I know. Oh, my God. And this scene just really added even more complications to that relationship between Rainies and Rhaenyra. I mean, Princess Rhaenys is obviously the queen who never was. And there's, I don't know if it's resentment. I I, I don't know if it's, it, it would be made that clear. Sort of like resignation, it seems like. It just sort of seems to be like resignation, like, you know, this is my lot. And she's kind of cursed to watch Rhaenyra, her niece, kind of go through this whole <laughs> situation. But it that sequence also leaves Rhaenyra really doubting herself, which I, I thought was fascinating because we've, as we know by reading the books, I mean, Rhaenyra is really going to fight and do a lot of things, good and potentially evil, to get this throne. And... Re- really, we see her moment of doubt, where she goes to Viserys's bedside. He can't kind of really hear or see very well. He's just kind of, who's there? What's going on? And 
she's really feeling like the high towers are gonna you know crush her in in the in the throne room the next day and she cries and she says you know i thought this is what i wanted but the burden is a heavy one it's too heavy and then she asks Viserys if he really believes that Aegon the Conqueror's prophecy, the Song of Ice and Fire, will come true one day. And if so, you know, what does that mean if Rhaenyra doesn't take the throne now? And then she, you know, she has this really low moment emotionally where she just pleads for her father, who's not even there mentally, <laughs> not we even think. all there. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. That's true. You know, if she says, if you wish me to bear it, then defend me and my children. And it's this, it was this very emotional, just rare, intimate moment that I really appreciated. What, uh, what about you? I really loved that scene. And just, I, I mean, I thought her and Viserys the whole time, like even in the earlier scene where she presents her sons to him, you know, she presents one Aegon and then this is Viserys. And he says, you know, he talks about it, you know, being the quite the name for a king. And I just thought that was uh, such a lovely little scene. And then, you know, she goes and she's so vulnerable in this moment because these are this is like the point when the knives are just so out for her and she can see that like you know she has that meeting with Alicent and Alicent is basically like well yeah I'm gonna be the one deciding so suck it bitch and even Renice tells her like you know the the high towers are gonna strike their first blow tomorrow and you know she's just sort of desperately trying to hang on at this point and so I think that's what's fascinating about the next scene that we're gonna probably talk about is just that scene in front of the Iron Throne where everyone's sort of pleading their case and what happens there and her plea to her father was actually heard I found that extremely moving when he, you know, when that happened. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to find out who the next Lord of Driftmark will be. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, Lauren, yes, let's dig into this big climactic bloody (laughs) event that transpires in the throne room of King's Landing. Everybody has gathered in court. Alicent is with her faction, her children. Rhaenyra is with hers, her family. Otto Hightower is sitting on the throne in the king's stead. Lines have been drawn in the sand. We also know that Vaymond Valarian met with Otto and Alicent prior to this. They are clearly colluding together, as Rhaenys mentioned, as their first big blow against Team Rhaenyra the Blacks. So Vaymond starts 
making his case. He's heavily alluding to the fact that Rhaenyra's children aren't Valarians. He says something along the lines of, oh, Rhaenyra, like, you wouldn't know uh, Valarian blood if you saw it. I could cut open myself and you still wouldn't recognize it. Which is technically treason. But listen, as Vaymond is playing the game, he knows that the Queen and the Hand are the ones who are deciding the fate of these proceedings. Rhaenyra tries to chime in, and Alicent shuts her down. She says, you will have your own time to petition the throne. But right now, we're, you know, deferring the floor to Vaymond. And, you know, he, uh... He makes kind of a, I mean, <laughs> it kind of goes back to what Aegon and Aemon were. A pretty move, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a ballsy move, but it kind of goes back to what Aegon, young Aegon said in, in the last episode, where it's like, listen, we can, we all have eyes, we can see it, that Luke and Jace are not Laenor Valarian's children. And then Rhaenyra gets up to make her petition, fuming. <laughs> steam, steam, just like in Clue. Steam coming out. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But before she really can dig into anything, the throne room doors burst open and in hobbles King Viserys. And this was such a sad sequence to watch, just his walk to the throne. It it was so sad, but it was so moving, too, because first of all, you kind of see the looks on Allison and Otto and Raymond's face where they're like, oh, no, <laughs> like our plans have gone awry. And you, and it, I mean, it was so like such a slow movement of him through the throne room. And when you see how high that iron throne was. And he, and but he was sort of determined to make it himself. And honestly, I thought that moment when his crown fell off, and he's like, "No, I'll do it myself." And then it was Damon that helped him, like up to sit on the throne and put the crown on his head. Like I was just, I was kind of moved by the whole thing, and I was just moved that he he basically showed up for his daughter and the, just the whole thing. Like I, I thought that whole thing, and, and him basically being like, "Now what is going on? Since this has been decided a long time ago, he's like, why have I dragged?" my ass out of bed for this you know and so i thought that was kind of i thought that was kind of an amazing scene and i did feel bad for how much makeup patty constantine uh probably had to wear in order to do this scene i know oh there was that moment too where he clocks eyes with his daughter and you get you really get the sense he's like if there's one thing that i can do before i die it's it's going to be to set this right and he kind of babbles a little bit later on as he's being carted off the throne where he's like, I, I need to set things right. I need to set things right kind of thing. But yeah, so Vaymond is kind of pissed about this whole thing. Um, but before we get into what Vaymond does, Viserys calls on Rhaenys. He says, you know, apart from Corlys, there's only one person in this room who could speak to Corlys's desires, and that's his wife. And Rainier is freaking out. She doesn't know what Rainice is going to do. But Lauren, what happens? Rainice shows that she is a politician through and through. She comes in. She confirms that Corliss wanted Luke to inherit Driftmark. Corliss does not really care if he has Valarian blood. He's got the Valarian name. That's all Corliss gives a shit about. And also, she, uh, you know, she basically accepts Rhaenyra's proposal that Lena's children, Bela and Reyna, will marry Jason Luke, so that there will be Valarian blood that will 
like, you, you know, will inherit Driftmark. Like, the sons of Luke and his betrothed will have Valerian blood. That will continue. And then there will be a Valerian queen who will also, like, so at this point, you're kind of like, Damon, you need to chill out because all of this stuff, like, there's going to be Valerian blood going all over the place here. Like, you know, your line is secure now. And he just is basically like, no, I'm like, you know, he just he just does not learn when to shut up. Because once Renice stepped forward, he should have been like, well, okay, the, you know, the Lady of Driftmark speaks and I am just going to shut up now and go back home. It's kind of perfect, though. It's all these women are forced to make really strategic moves in order to survive. And all these men think that they can just scream and complain about everything and they're going to get their way in the end. But question for you, Lauren, do you think Rhaenys would have made the decision that she made before King Viserys if Viserys hadn't surprise shown up in the throne room that day? You know, I'm not sure that she would, but the thing is, I I don't think Renice is like an evil person. And I know for her, you know, she would be basically condemning Jason Luke to death. And I, I don't know if she knows that like, you know, Lanar, they might not have been his biological children, but he like, she must've seen him, him caring for them. And, you know, I, and as like Damon said that no matter what she thinks of Renera and him, she's not a cruel woman. So I, I just can't see her condemning, you know, cause he, she would be condemning Jace and Luke and Joffrey and Renera to death almost immediately if she challenged the their birthright at all so she she can do that on the side with Corliss in, in the privacy of their own home but i think she's just was like she knows what kind of a, a, a stain that would leave on house valarian if she did that so i you know I, I think like she probably would have i don't know if she would have said like oh yeah they're gonna marry jason luke but i think she probably you know i don't think she would have called them out she probably would have been like yeah, as far as i know they're my son's kids mm-hmm. <laughs> she's not a stunt queen per se no, but a really. discretionary queen <laughs> yeah pretty much she's not a stunt queen you know yeah. she keeps her own counsel so she probably would have figured out what was the best uh, best decision in that moment yeah so then something happens with Vaymond. I was also on set for this sequence of events. Oh, it, took, it took the entire day for them to shoot. Everyone gathered really early in the morning. I remember everyone in wigs, but all like street clothes beneath them as they were just, you know, kind of getting the lay of the land. I think M- Miguel and Gita Patel, the director of this episode, they stepped up with microphones and they were just talking about the choreography and the group. And that's how the morning started. And then later there's multiple takes, multiple takes. And then when it comes to, listen, the beheading of Eamon <laughs> Valarian, there was a lot of mat work. <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, the blue mat, you know, on the floor. So the actor's knees doesn't crumble on the pavement <laughs> as he falls over. Um, very cool to see it all kind of come together. But Vaymond is about to call Jason Luke bastards and he stops himself. But then Damon, which I loved, just He's whispers. Just like yeah. He whispers to him, but with a very kind of stoic face with a slight, slight smirk on his face. He just whispers, say it. Go on. Like, I dare you. <laughs> do it. <laughs> 
And he does. And he shouts, you know, the fact that these kids are bastards. He calls Rhaenyra a whore. Viserys then stands up, unsheathes his dagger. Yeah, like Viserys is coming for him. Yeah. Right? He's like, I will destroy you. And then Vaymon, not Vaymon, and then Damon sneaks up behind Vaymon and slices his head off. And I love that he cut it through the right through the mouth. And so yeah, the he, tongue, did, he didn't get the tongue. <laughs> it's just like I was like, were you planning that, or did that just sort of like no? That's he knew I exactly think, where he cut it. So I think he knew exactly where to cut it because he has that amazing line where he's like, "No, he can keep his tongue. I'll just you know take the rest <laughs> of his head." <laughs> I did notice like that was the one thing I thought was foreshadowing because the entirety of King's Landing. Damon has Dark Sister like constantly in every single scene. You can see Damon like Dark Sister is just like like is just sort of poking out of wherever you know whatever he's sitting down is there. And I was just like, oh well, if Dark Sister's there, something's happening here. So that Valerian steel really, really cuts a clean uh, a clean shot, but. Like butter. Like Like butter. butter. (laughs) There there was a lot of, it was like, I felt bad because I was like, there was a lot of like, I did not need to see this much of Damon's like decapitated head afterward. Like even with the silent sister scene, I'm like, could you just put that back together? So I don't have to like, you're like, and I also kind of felt bad for Rainey's because this is just another member of house Valarian that has died in such close proximity. When Corliss wakes up from this fever of his, he's gonna, there's a lot of explaining to go on. And I can imagine Corliss is gonna be like, could you have not prevented this at all? Like, could you have not, like, just locked Vaiman in the dungeon or something for a while till he cooled out? Like, what the hell? Why did you all go to King's Landing while I was sick? Like, you know. <laughs> and in true Game of Thrones fashion, this wasn't even the biggest thing that no. happened. <laughs> we get a dinner sequence after the fact. Viserys is once again trying to mend his divided family. And for a while, it does seem like it's working. You know, I think Rhaenyra stands up, toasts Allison. It's really really nice speech i gotta say allison in turn also seemed very genuine i think this was you know one of those times where she kind of looked at herself looked around and she's like what am i doing and she even says to rainira you're gonna make a great queen one day but then we see (laughs) all the different dynamics between the children which again it kind of goes back to something ryan condal um the series co-creator and co-showrunner on season one said which is the fact that, you know, it's this is a generational conflict. One generation started it, but they have very different interests than the generation that follows them, who have very different interests than the generation that follows them. And so now we're seeing the younger generation kind of being kids, being douches, douche nozzles, numb nuts, numb nut of the <laughs> week, as <laughs> you, you might call them, Lauren. Oh, Vayman is very much the numb nut of the week this week, because he should have <laughs> just left it alone. Sorry. He's the numb nut of the week. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry, he lost his head, but he's also the numb nut of the week. So Aegon, let, like, let's kind of break apart all this escalating tension. Aegon, I think, starts it, right? He's the one who's first going to Jace um, after it's announced that, I believe it's Bela marries Jace, Reyna marries Luke. And Aegon is kind of just 
joshing or bullying really picking on jace says something to the effect of like oh do you even know how to have sex with a woman and goes to bela and is like if you ever feel unsatisfied you know where to find me basically and i love that bela is just like get the fuck out of here. yeah bela's just like <laughs> like you don't know i, like, I want to see more of these valarian ladies they seem interesting you know if they have her nieces or grandmother they must be interesting come on I just gotta say, I love seeing Lena's children together with Rhaenyra's children because they love each other. I mean, yes. They've been living together. They're very copacetic here. You know, they like each other. They, you know, maybe Bela and Rena probably whisper, yeah, they're not really Uncle Lenor's kids, but they seem pretty nice. And honestly, they they seem like Jace and Luke. And I felt so bad for Luke because he looked terrified in so many shots in this episode. But I like, know. I know. But Jace seems like such a nice kid. You're like, what are you doing in this awful family? <laughs> But it's just like Aegon's so terrible. And and then like, you know, also like there's the whole shot of them bringing in the pig. And then Luke starts to laugh at Aemond because of the stunt where they, you know, the pink dread. And then Aemond decides to start calling them bastards. And you kind of just see like... Well, not bastards. He calls them strong. And, but he's essentially calling them a bastard. Right, sure. Uh, and, but, but I did love that subtlety. Yeah. I love a pun. It's like, yeah, because <laughs> normally if you're calling someone strong, you're complimenting them. But this is very much like, a, you know, but you could just see like that the poison that Allison has been pouring into these two men for years. It just even if she has a change of heart, it does. It's not going to change their hearts. Like, you know, they are set against, you know, and it's also like they have power in their grasp, like because if Aegon becomes the you know the heir to the iron throne that that means Aemon's even closer you know he's closer to it or maybe he'll become hand of the king or whatever you know since uh, Aegon already has heirs but you know it's just kind of like very interesting to see that you know no matter if Alicent and Rhaenyra like did have some kind of like thawing of the animosities like it's too late that their children you know already know you know, already hate each other or have reasons to hate each other. So I thought that was kind of like, I'm a poor Viserys, like taking off his, I don't know if you ever saw Boardwalk Empire, but his, the mask. And when he takes it off, like he reminded me of the character, Richard Harrow, who was missing half of his face because of World War One. And I was just like, this just whole thing where he takes off the mask and you see that he's missing an eye, he's missing half of his face. And you're just like, this poor man just needed a good dose of antibiotics at one point in his life. And he probably would have been fine i really liked all the symbology with all like the the focus on eyes you know aemond only has one eye but he sees all kind of thing and then you go over to see his father who's in a similar situation not the same but but i believe it's like the opposite eye that he's lost that viserys has lost compared to aemond and it's just it's interesting to see the visual representation of half of his face has been charred while his other is still looks i mean elderly but i mean this man is supposed to be like in his 40s early 40s you know he and damon are not that far apart and you look at damon and you're like damon looks great renice looks great and then there's this man who basically looks like he's 105 years old at the end of all of this and this is 
partly why the Dance of the Dragons is so tragic. I mean, there is a moment where it seems like there is reconciliation between Alicent and Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra wants to take her children back to Dragonstone. Alicent seems like, I miss you, my friend. She kind of giving off that kind of energy. And then Rhaenyra vows, you know, I'm, I'll fly back on Dragonback to King's Landing and I'll see you. But I just want to take my children home first. And then... <laughs> and then i know i want to ask you what you kind of thought about the the final moments so let's kind of table set you know viserys is back in bed he can't really move he's kind of muttering to himself allison goes in to tuck him in viserys in his rambling thinks he's talking to rhaenyra but again he can't really see it's dark can't really hear that well she just gave him milk of the poppy it looks like so he's hopped up on opioids yeah so he is he thinks he's talking to rhaenyra and he brings back up aegon's prophecy the song of ice and fire allison has no idea what he's talking about so she thinks he's talking about their son aegon and he says the prince that was promised the prince who was promised like it you have to do this there's too many people named Aegon in this story. <laughs> this is yes. the problem. Yeah. I kind of love... Oh, so the big takeaway, obviously, is the fact that, you know, Allison thinks he's telling her that, oh, I've had a change of heart. We, we need to put Aegon, our son, on the throne instead of Rhaenyra. And she goes off. She's like, oh, I, she puts him to bed. And she's like, I understand my king. And then leaves, which I kind of... Part of me loved because I'm just like, it's so stupid yeah like it's so stupid, stupid but also a lot of what happens over the course of the dance of the dragons is so stupid like if yeah. you just talk so to each other yeah. this wouldn't have happened and here's another just stupid coincidence that just ugh. <laughs> I don't, how did you feel about all part of me was just like oh i hate when like things get like like those kind of scenes where like you know there's just a simple misinterpretation of these things but i'm just like yeah as you said like so much so much of what happens in dance the dance of the dragons is because just people are being stupid right and left so uh, part of me was just like oh but also like uh, yeah, again, too many people are named Aegon, and t- that does leave for confusion. But then in part of me, she's like, she knows there's another Aegon now, because there's Aegon the Younger, which is Rhaenyra's child. So yeah, there's all this like, yeah, well, you know, this is a lot of confusion on that on that part. So I wasn't, but th- there was the very, very end shot where I was like, it seems to me that Viserys dies and I know we're having like, we're, we're like, did he really die? It seems like he died because he also says at the very end, the last thing he says is my love. And I was curious if you thought that like he was, he still thought he was talking to Renera and called Renera my love, or perhaps he had actually was dying and maybe he saw Emma. Like I, that's why I was just like, there was a lot of different things where I was like, I didn't think he was talking to Allison, but I, I was just kind of curious what you thought about that sort of final moment. So let's, at this point, let's bring in the books. Spoiler warning to anyone listening in who hasn't read the books and just wants to, you know, be watching the series for what it is. More power to you. I love it. But yeah, so in Fire and Blood, as you know, Lauren, Viserys dies under very specific circumstances. He dies while sitting on the Iron Throne. And it's only later that I believe an attendant 
finds his body and goes back and reports to Alicent that the king has died. And that's really what is, I think, starts the Dance of the Dragons, really. So I, I personally don't mind all of these deviations from the source material if we are talking about the fact that, you know, maybe Viserys did die. I think it makes a lot of sense. There was a lot of focus on his breathing. And then is after his last word, it kind of cuts to black and we get the end credits. There was, you know, a close-up shot of his Valyrian steel dagger, which as we know is embedded with A Song of Ice and Fire in High Valyrian on the blade. It, it really felt finite. So, I mean, I kind of think this is it. I, I don't think we're going to be seeing Viserys alive <laughs> anymore after this. What did you think? I, that's what I thought. Cause I was like, he was in such bad condition that I'm just like, how would this man, like, what is his heart made of? Is his heart made of Valyrian steel? If he survives this, it just keeps pumping. Like the rest of him is falling apart, but that heart, man, like it just keeps pumping. So to me, th- this really felt like his death. And so I, I, I like the the one thing is like we have uh, we have basing this on we've watched screeners, but we the screeners never have the in the next episode of things. So I, I have a feeling that would confirm whether he had died or not. So at this point, we're but it seemed to me like he he had died, and you know he caused a lot of confusion on his way out. So and I am curious, like if Allison hadn't heard that, would that this rapprochement between the two of uh, between the two sides happen or is it just you know things are already too much in motion for that to stop because there is in fire and blood there was like there was this sort of like last kind of dinner situation that this sort of was reflected in the show is that the both sides coming together and both sides making nice and all this kind of stuff but you know Eamon's being an asshole and Viserys sort of dies shortly after this so I'm kind of curious if this is, you know, this was it for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I th- it's hard even for book readers to know, because as you're alluding to, Lauren, uh, the events that are chronicled in Fire and Blood are told in a completely different order than what we're seeing right now in Episode 8. Like this dinner at the end of Episode 8, yes, that does directly precede the death of Aceris. However, the dinner in the book is supposed to be a celebration of the fact that Viserys was looking like he was going to die, and then a new maester stepped in and saved him with new medical remedies. So maybe. And also, the Viserys in the book is not falling. Like, he's he's basically, he's kind of got the Henry VIII. He's grown very fat. He's having, it seems like he's having a lot of heart attacks. He's gout. He's got gout. It's not like he's basically just you know, not this kind of form of leprosy that he seems to have that just parts of him keep falling off. It's like, he's just, he's like just a fat kind of uh, unhealthy King. So, you know, but he does get an infection from the getting cut on the iron throne and loses two fingers from it. But it's, you know, his death is very different, you know, in the book than it is in this point. I mean, he does. He dies young, but it's not. He doesn't die the same way. One more thing we need to talk about is Masaria, who makes yeah, a surprise she pops cameo. Up again. I, I mean, Sonoya Mizuno, who plays Masaria, she was on one of the first character posters for House of the Dragon, which suggested she is going to be a big part 
on this show, and so far she really hasn't been. But we see a hooded figure that I immediately thought was Damon because you know Damon loves a hood when he's about to go plundering. <laughs> I almost thought I almost thought maybe it was like going to be Amon or something like you know since he's like basically mini he, he's Damon's mini me at this point. But yeah, like when I saw that it was uh, it seemed like it was a, one of the female servants. Yeah, it was the same. It was the same female servant that brought Diana to before Queen Allison. I'm never <laughs> Diana. I'm never going to look at that Diana, <laughs> name <yeah>. ever. <laughs> the same ever again. So I, it really makes me wonder how big of a part Masaria is going to be playing in the sequence of events coming up because she's really not that big of a presence in the book. But as as we know, the book is supposed to be this historical record. And, you know, people like Lara Strong, we've seen, have been keen to keep their name out of the historical record, even if they did have a bigger part to play. (laughs) And Masari is looking different. She is looking a lot more regal. She's looking like she is doing well for herself. Like, you know, this lady is making money and you can see it in her, in her, what she's wearing. I'm really interested to see how she may or may not manipulate the sequence of events that are before us now. In terms of the larger context, in terms of House of the Dragon in relation to the books, is there anything about this episode that, I don't know, maybe remixed the source material or gave you, uh, you know, a broader sense of the source material in a respect that kind of sticks out to you? Oh, well, I think they, this, they did make, I think they are making Alicent a lot more complex than she is in the book, because in the book, she's just kind of, She's kind of awful. I mean, she's kind of awful in the show too, but she's a lot more complex and I think you can understand her a lot more. Like you understand the, you know, the things that made her into what she currently is. But, you know, I think it's very interesting. Just I'm fascinated by Rhaenys' position in the show compared to where she was in the books because it's like she's with the Blacks, but we've seen in the show that she doesn't really like Rhaenyra. Like she's not, like, she's not super, you know. Not a not her biggest fan, yeah. <laughs> not not her biggest fan. So I am curious, like when she, like you know, when the dragons start flying, where Renice is, how they sort of settle on why she's on Team Black, and if it's just because you know her grandchildren are on Team Black, and well. I'm I'm sticking with my grandkids and that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of curious about that whole thing. Yeah, I really can't wait to see Rhaenys the Dragon Rider because as Eve Best has said multiple times, including in an interview that I conducted with her, she says Rhaenys is the most formidable of all of the Targaryen Dragon Riders, Targaryen, Valarian alike. I cannot wait to see her on that dragon, Maelise, the Red Queen, as her <laughs> dragon is known. That's going to be, oh, killer. I can't wait to see it. To ask myself the same question that I posed you earlier, there was a very small moment in the throne room, and it's when Damon beheads Vaymond. <laughs> this little indie um, filmmaking <laughs> moment. But in the book, it's mentioned that after Vaymond calls Luke and Jace bastards and calls Rhaenyra a whore, that Rhaenyra is the one who commands Damon to go and sever his head. And it really made me think about, you know, the ways in which the historical perspective approaches women and how history chooses to tell female stories. And the history is written by men 
typically, as is this case in House of the Dragon. And we're seeing that the reality of the situation is different than what is on the official record of events. And it makes me think back to the fact that, yes, these women, Rhaenyra and Allison, are making moves. But then there are people like Laris Strong, who takes it upon himself to do something brash and just kind of out of left field that changes the game entirely. And Damon did something similar in this moment. And I guess now we will see what repercussions may or may not come from his actions. But it made me think of this show in a larger context as women just trying to survive, go about their business, and the men around them are just making shit decisions. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) All around. I mean, Viserys made so many shit decisions here. Like, you know, if he had just married Lena Valerian, if he had just let Rhaenyra and Daemon get married to begin with, none of these issues should be coming out. Like, at this point, (laughs) Rhaenyra would have, like, six or seven very blonde children. One thing that I did um, when Rhaenyra presented Viserys with his namesake, and he goes, well, now that's the name fit for the king. And the thing is, I mean, book readers know that if it stays the same, Viserys is basically going to be Daenerys's heir. Like, everybody descendant later on, like John and Daenerys are descendant from the second Viserys. So it's kind of just interesting to like, when he said that's the name fit for a king, it's like, well, yeah, he's also going to be, he's one of these only people who's actually going to be king, you know, and, and have an effect of, of that as well. So that, that one just kind of like popped out at me when we were thinking about it. Yeah, no, I love that. It should be noted for listeners that we are recording this podcast prior to episode eight airing and streaming on HBO Max this coming Sunday. So we haven't seen the look ahead teaser that typically accompanies the end of each episode. That might give us an answer as to whether Viserys is dead, or if he's still alive and kicking for a little bit longer. But in any case, Viserys' death... He's not long for this world. Yeah. He's not long for this world. And as soon as he dies, things are going to be kicking up into high gear. People are going to be making moves on both sides to put either Rhaenyra or Aegon on the Iron Throne. Lauren, what are you most excited (laughs) at this moment? At this moment, I'm mostly just excited to see these dragons getting into the air and, you know, people taking sides and, you know, the dragons starting to fight. Because we haven't seen that many dragons, but a lot of these people are dragon riders. So I am kind of interested, as you mentioned, seeing Renice up on her dragon and, you know, seeing even though these kids are bastards, supposedly, these are all dragon riders. So seeing all of these people fighting and I'm kind of curious to see how the show tackles these big dragon battles, or if it's going to be one of these things where it's like, this is a lot of money they're spending on CGI effects. So if it's going to be like, we're going to just creatively cut these battles. So we're not getting, you know, but it should be interesting to see. Yeah. There's a line in fire and blood. It's something to the effect of, you know, it's hard for a dragon slayer to kill a dragon, but dragons can kill other dragons and have. And so this is, this is it. The Battle Royale. One side <laughs> egg on the second, one side Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. Who is going to come out on top? Can't wait to chronicle it all with you, Lauren. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this week. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Gita Patel, the director of Episode 8 of House of the Dragon.
it feels like such a full circle moment. I, that day on set was kind of crazy. There was like smoke like rising above the ground from this boiler <laughs> in the floor. I think yeah. I, my the biggest memory that sticks out to me though was Dragon Set was the coldest set. On. Yes. What yes, was- we all had layers on that day. Somebody somebody told me that it was going to be cold and warned me. And so I'm glad I, I did do that because it's hard to work when you're shivering. Yeah. <laughs> For you, what was the biggest memory that stands out from filming this episode? Was it the cold or was it <laughs> something? Oh, no. I mean, there's not even one. I there. This was the best experience I've had as a director on a job. This was everything I thought it was going to be in the best way. So there are beautiful moments. Like one was when one of the objectives of this episode was to get inside Rhaenyra and Allison's heads. I wanted to, we wanted to see things from their perspective and really, you know, you have these two people who are at odds and particularly Allison wanted to feel her, you know, feel her vulnerability and just understand both of them. So it's almost like you've got two people you love and yet they hate each other, that type of thing. And that's closer to reality and something we we all relate to. So one of the moments I loved was when I was with, we were filming a scene with Rhaenyra and we wanted, it just felt like we were watching her instead of with her. It's when she arrives to King's Landing and she gets out of this chariot and, you know, presents herself and is, is very nervous, obviously, because she hasn't been back in so many years. And this is a place that in her mind judged her and made her into someone she didn't want to be. And here she is as someone who's found herself, found who she is. And, and so she's this little girl coming back. And so we, you know, as usual, as you probably saw when you were visiting, we're always rushing, 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 you know, out of time, especially that day, daylight, we don't have any daylight left. And I had this thought of, well, why are we watching her coming out of it, this chariot? It feels like the story is actually the moment right before she comes out. And so the cinematographer, Katie and I were like, okay, we've got, you know, 10 minutes and everybody, the whole crew, everybody was on board with this idea. And so, you know, and this is what I'm saying. It's one of the best experiences. Everybody was about it, about the story. And so moved as fast as we could, got her inside the chariot, had everything, you know, figured out already because we knew it was something we wanted to try. And we shot that moment of her just sitting there. And that was one of my favorite moments because, and then, oh, oh, and then a light went out, a light went out like oh, it was inside. And we were like, wow, that looks better than it did lit. Like it was just, you know, and that's what's in there, I think. <laughs> Unless it was cut out since then. But, but, you know, there is this image of her inside the chariot and she, and there's not any light in there. It's because the light bulb went out. <laughs> and then Katie's like, oh no, I'll fix it. I was like, no, don't fix it. Don't fix it. You know, and it's those just magical moments where the story is telling you, hey, yeah, this is the right direction to go. You know, I love to hear this because I was speaking to a few of the actors previously and they would credit like some of the directors like Claire and Greg for helping to like really shape the characters and the performances. And it sounds like you had a very similar experience on this episode. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I think it was a partnership. It was that's the reason I do what I do is to work with the actors. My brother's an actor. He's the one that introduced me to the magic that they have as performers. And it is the reason I do this. I mean, yes, I love all the bells and whistles of cinematography. I love the long takes. I love the big crane shots, but I will give them up in a second to get a few extra takes 
of performance if we need it, if we feel like there's something happening that we need to embrace. I, I think that's that's why this was really fun. All the actors were top of their game and worked so hard to bring dimension to who they were playing. And th- there's very little that's more fun than that, you know, in this yeah. job. I feel like even though there's so much going on in this episode, it still in some respects feels like the calm before the storm, because we know that as soon as Viserys dies, like things are going to kickstart into <laughs> high gear. So it feels like a lot of things are just kind of simmering before kind of the battle, the civil war yeah. kind of rages on later on. Did it feel like that when you were kind of reading the scripts and coming up with your approach for this episode? Well, it definitely felt like that was the story that we wanted to tell. And I think making it come to life was a team effort. Ryan and Miguel were very clear that they wanted the stakes to be very high as far as you know, all these strings are holding this realm together just barely. And that takes every level of storytelling to in my mind to create so we were constantly you know having meetings and going through the scenes and triple checking you know quadruple checking every single scene to make sure that the strings were pulled as tight as they could like they were at the breaking point that was really fun and like i said it, i think it took all of us as a family to make that happen it took conversations with the actors you know understanding that nothing could be black and white nothing could, everything had to be tentative in a way i mean jumping off of that a little bit the strings i felt like were so evident in this episode in particular and like it's it's really tragic in a lot of ways i feel like allison and rainira are really always looking for ways to kind of patch this relationship but because of the machinations of everyone around them and certain things that transpire, it's like they're constantly bound for tragedy, which makes it even more tragic. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know how you felt about that kind of dynamic in this episode. I, I did. I mean, I loved every single character. I felt the vulnerability of every single character. Coming into the episode, I disliked Alicent you know, she comes out of Miguel's episode. <laughs> I kept telling Miguel, I was like, can you give me something, like something to go on? <laughs> He's like, nope, sorry. You know, <laughs> she's hanging out with Lars in the last scene. You're, you're, you know, you got to figure it out now. I'm, I'm joking. But like, you know, in, in our episode, it was really important that Alicent and Rhaenyra, that tension, that friendship was believable. And yet, if you look at the actual words, they don't say to each other, I miss you. They don't say to each other, I'm lonely. You know, they don't say these things. And so finding those moments were really important to Ryan and Miguel and myself in letting everything be the subtext. And another moment that I really loved in filming this was there's a scene in in the beginning of the episode where Allison is talking to the girl that got raped by her son. And when you read that scene and you've been through all the episodes right before it's easy to just be like, Allison is a cold hearted snake. And yet, and we talked about it before, you know, we were like, we can't let that happen. We have to feel Allison. And so we, of course, had a way of shooting it and, you know, being with Allison and really feeling what she might be going through. And, and the idea was to make it a day in the life for her. So you, you, you're going through the hallways, you're going meeting to meeting to meeting, and, and you feel this working mom feeling 
you know, and that she's not always perfect and she doesn't always get it right. And she doesn't have the, all the choices in the world. She almost has to choose between worst case scenarios. And it's interesting how when we got to that scene, I was still concerned. I thought, God, you know, the scene, she cannot come across as a snake. And yet every, you know, what is she doing right now? Well, she's paying off this girl to be quiet about being raped. And Olivia just blew it out of the water. She just was Alicent in the most vulnerable, powerful, dimensional, emotional way. And we had such a great time shooting that scene. It reminds me of something, you know, Sarah Hess said, like even before this show really premiered, um, yeah. because obviously, you know, everybody like in the fandom has had good things and bad things to say about the original Game of Thrones portrayal of women. But Sarah has like made it clear at the start of the show, like, oh, we're not going to be depicting all these violent sexual acts against women. We have one scene that happens off camera and then we deal with the aftermath of it. Yeah. And when I came across this, I was like, oh, this is, this must be that scene. Yeah. I mean, coming into this, I mean, did you and also Sarah have like very clear ideas about how to approach the Diana moment? I, I think we just, we both, Sarah and I are close and we, we talk about, you know, just as I do with Ryan, actually, you know, all these moments. And I think we all were on the same page. We wanted the realism to be, present in all of these scenes, meaning yes, being raped or being hurt sexually is a serious thing. And then there's the complication of the way society works during these times. Is it something that someone would call the police and make a big deal out of, or is it something that just happened all the time? And, and going into that gray area too is quite interesting. So there was a lot of conversation, particularly around this scene and this part of the story. Another um, sequence that I wanted to talk to you about is Viserys of it all. I mean, it's funny to look back in early interviews with Patty Considine and everyone's talking about the makeup process and he's being very <laughs> quiet. Like, <laughs> I mean, because obviously he has the biggest makeup process, makeup yeah, change, yeah. but he can't really talk about it. I, I remember this particular sequence where he is kind of making his labored march into the throne room during kind of like the petition sequences. I remember it taking kind of all day to fit, like to complete. Was this like yeah. a particularly intricate sequence to pull off? Yeah, that, that was a very, very big sequence. We had a lot of just logistical obstacles during that time, not worth getting into, but it was just, you know, it was already the biggest thing that we had to do as far as Patty's turnaround. He had so much time in prosthetics getting ready for that. And then there was a conversation about him walking down the aisle, the real time of him walking down the aisle is just like you're looking at your watch as as a producer, I think, just going, and as a director going, oh my God, that's just the first take and it took, you know, 20 minutes. And it was just a very, it's one of those things where I was approached at one point, I can't remember who came up to me and said, you know, maybe we should just cut around this, like not do it, really do it. Let's just do it once. And then, and I was like, no, we are going to do the walk because it's the story, right? It's the story is actually that he is walking down this aisle. He is in an extreme amount of pain. His pain was the story. He is walking towards something, you know, he wants to save the realm. If we cut it short, we would have, we would lose that element forever in in the edit room we would never have that possibility and so we we just put our heads down and 
shot Patty walking down. And even for Patty, that was a hard thing to do because he's got that cane and it kind of hurts your back doing that walk more than once. But I'm very proud that we stuck to our guns on that because I do feel like that is what helps the emotion come out, hopefully, in that scene. And then, you know, another great moment that came out of that scene, which is also one of my favorite moments, is when Ryan and Miguel and I discussed that scene, we'd always thought, okay, he's his eyes are towards the throne. Like it was going to be shot that way. You see him exerting, you see Patty exerting himself, Viserys exerting himself, and then you see he's trying to get to the throne to help the realm. And then while we were rehearsing, Rhaenyra just happens to be standing there in the middle. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not walking to the throne. He's walking to her. And for me, at least, for my own understanding, that put tears in my eyes right there during rehearsal. Because I am the daughter of a father who loves me so much. And he would have walked through, you know, he would have walked on fire for me. And so that's when all of a sudden, even though we had no time as usual, you know, because we're always maximizing, I, you know, we did what we could to get that moment of Rhaenyra and Viserys connecting. Viserys isn't walking to the throne, in my opinion, he's walking to his daughter. So that was a wonderful discovery. I wish I thought of it a day before even. I would have shot more of it, but I'm so <laughs> glad that we were able to get the shots we did and, and they did make it to the cut. And I don't know, that was that was great. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about that and also kind of like the light bulb going out in the carriage, were there any other kind of moments that ended up being really important to this episode that kind of came out or you just found on the day shooting? There was one moment in the throne room where Damon helps Viserys up the stairs to the throne because he's so Viserys is so weak he can't make it himself. And first soldier comes up to Viserys and Viserys shakes him away and says, "No, no, no, I can do this myself." You know he has the pride. And then another person comes to him and he thinks it's a soldier and it's actually his brother. And so when we were shooting that, the I think one of the I think the rehearsal again the first take the crown fell off of Patty's head and Matt picked it up and we just kept going. That you know we didn't stop. Matt picked it up and there was a discovery there of this moment. So then they both, of course, you know, the three of us got together and they were like, we felt this, we felt this, this felt like the turning point in our relationship. It's just a silent moment. And then we thought to ourselves, okay, well, we have the dinner coming up where Damon's going to then give a speech. Are we going to undercut that moment? And so we decided to shoot it both ways with the crown falling off and with the crown not falling off. And every time the crown fell off, all of us just caught our breath. And and at the same time, we thought, oh, will we have anywhere to go by the time we get to the dinner? And funny enough, in the edit, we discovered that the moment was actually the crown falling off, in, in my mind, at least. And then when you got to the dinner, it was more of an aftermath moment. It was more about the dinner when Matt gave that, you know, when Damon gives that speech it, it that's there's too many people in the room almost for that to be the emotional moment. It I was so thankful that that accident happened that the crown fell off because it it proved to be quite a, at least for me quite a heavy moment and a quite a quite a turning point for a storyline that had started in the pilot. You know, hey, I want your crown, and by the end, here I'm going to put the crown back on your head. And I'm going to help you to your throne. I felt the exact same way with the crown, especially it. It also just really emphasized the fact that maybe Viserys is thinking, if this is the last thing I can do for my child, I'm I'm going to do it. 
kind of no yeah. matter what. And then obviously later on in this episode, like I think it's the final sequence. I mean, I feel like all the cinematic flourishes throughout this episode are kind of setting up what, at least from my perspective as a viewer, felt like Viserys kind of taking his very last breaths at the end of this episode. Is that really kind of like the trajectory that you guys were going for? Yeah, I think the last scene of this episode was always a litmus test is every time we'd watch it through or think it through, when we got to that last scene, did we feel what we wanted to feel there? Did we feel the loss? Did we feel that Viserys has told his story? Did we feel that he loved his wife who passed away? Did he did he love Allison? Did he love Rhaenyra? Did he, did he regret anything? Like all the complicated layers of Viserys, did we feel it? For better or worse. And so I think for me, that was always a moment that I would check myself on. And then I go back to the drawing board and talk to Miguel and Ryan and be like, okay, you know, I don't think we're, th- I, I, I think we're not there here. We're there here. Like what, you know what I mean? And, or, or just even the actors just trying constantly to check that that moment at the end worked. I mean, I hope it works, but you know, that, that was the goal for sure. This has become such a water cooler chat moment between me and my coworker who's seen the episode. We're debating who we think Viserys is kind of seeing kind of in his last moment. Cause he raises his hand. Yeah. And we're like, is this Rhaenyra or is this Emma? Is this Allison even like after all yeah. they've been through, does he really yeah. love Allison? I'm curious yeah. what your take on that. <laughs> moment is. Well, it's an, I'm not a fair person to ask because I actually had the com- I had the luxury of having a conversation with Patty and he whispered to me who he was thinking of. So I probably shouldn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him say it if he wants to say it. I I had the same question. <laughs> and and that's what I'm saying. It's just the best part of my job. It's so great, you know, just to be inside Patty's mind as he's Viserys and to wonder as well, which way is this going to go? You are also the first director on the show to work with the new crop of actors who are playing the children of Allison and Rhaenyra, specifically when it comes to Tom and Ewan, I believe, mm-hmm. um, who play Aegon and Aemond. Mm-hmm. I mean, were, were you very actively involved, like working with them on kind of the approach and where these characters really are in this time period, because they are not the same people that we last saw them as. (laughs) Yeah, I was actively involved, but I should mention that Miguel and Ryan were really the masterminds of of all these characters. I, you know, I have my marching orders of what the story is supposed to be. and, And that's where my job started with them is I knew what the story was. I knew what their turning points were. I knew what their conflict was. I knew where they came from. I knew the story of the pig. I knew, you know, all those things. Then I worked with them on performance and performance wasn't, you know, again, one of the best things is performance on a show like this. We get the time to work with the actors. We have rehearsals. We have lots of conversations. And in the end, they brought it. They found their characters. Ewan was... (laughs) so creepy and gave me chills and everything. And yet when he's off camera, he's the sweetest person you've ever met. And every time you finish a take, he'll say, 
I do what we do it better. I can do it better. What do you want me to do? I mean, he's just one of those people that works so hard and it just cracks me up because, you know, as soon as the camera's on, he's this other person. And I think he did a really good job finding who he was and giving that person nuance and discovery. So I'm very proud of him. And Tom, same thing. You know, Tom is this lonely child who is disliked by everyone, misunderstood. And he found a way to make us love him and feel for him. And that moment where Allison walks away from him, you know, he's naked in bed. I don't know about anybody else, but I felt him. I felt the child in him. So, and even at the table later, when he's sitting there with Patty, we made a point again in this episode, we wanted to be with everyone. We didn't want to watch a single character. We wanted to be every character. And so we found him alone and focused on his moments. And if you just put the camera on Tom, there's always something interesting happening. I think it's just the trick is as directors and you know teams of director of photography, making the time to be able to get all these moments where you're filming something so big. And thank goodness we were able to. Gita, thank you so much. I really oh, appreciate you okay. taking the time. Yeah, it was so nice to see you again. Yeah, uh, I love a full circle moment. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.